I would ask if you'd stand with me once again out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning, continuing in our studies of the gospel according to Luke. And uh, this morning we are in Luke chapter 23, verses 17, verses 17 to 31. And, uh, and just as I'll talk about this in a moment, but you notice probably to be up there on the screen, um, but, uh, but in your Bible probably um, doesn't have a verse 17. And so we'll, we'll be talking about, about why that is um, in, a, in a few moments. So Luke chapter 23, verses 17 to 31. Sorry, I'm Luke 18. I couldn't find it. We got wrong, wrong courses, wrong passages. There we go. Um, Luke 17, sorry, Luke 23, verse 17. Now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. But they cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that, nursed, that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, I do so with trepidation. For yet again, I am aware of the fact that I am powerless to be able to communicate these truths in, in any way that would make any difference in anyone's life, even in my own. But Lord, I pray confident in the power of the Holy Spirit that your word will accomplish that for which you send it. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth with power, that you will help us this morning to see Christ. Help us to see what Christ suffered for our sins. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us ways that we have rejected Christ. I pray also through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will grant us repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that would be set free from Satan's snare. Help us, Lord, to follow you 
wholeheartedly with all of our lives. Cause your grace to abound in us. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. It has often been said that the clearest display of God's attributes is at the cross. Well, I would add to that that the clearest display of man's depravity is also at the cross. When I was looking for an image to put on the church bulletin, reflecting the crowd's rejection of Jesus and their, their call to crucify him, I came across an image of a man at a protest. I don't know what the protest was. I don't know, well, but I do know what he was protesting. He held up a placard with a very disturbing message. It said, if Jesus comes back, kill him again. You heard that right. If Jesus comes back, he said, kill him again. Outside of the wickedness that we see in our passage here this morning, I don't think I've ever heard anything so blasphemous in my entire life. This man thinks he's being pretty clever. But clearly, he doesn't see that he's actually acknowledging the things that he'd say he vehemently denies. He's acknowledging Jesus. He is acknowledging that Jesus came. He's acknowledging that the enemies of Jesus killed Jesus. He's also acknowledging life after death, that a person continues to exist after death. But he's also acknowledging, at least tacitly, the promise that Jesus would return. I've got some news for that man. Jesus is coming back. There is no if when Jesus comes back, he is not coming to die again. When Jesus comes back, he is coming to save his people and to bring vengeance upon his enemies. No, it won't be Jesus who dies when he returns. Unless that man repents, it will be him. And he will die eternal death. This is clearly rejection of Jesus. But not all rejection of Jesus looks like that. Not all rejection of Jesus is so aggressive, so audacious. Most rejection of Jesus is subtle and ordinary. Most rejection of Jesus takes place in the lives of decent people. Even people who identify with Jesus. Nice people, compassionate people, moral people reject Jesus. Even people who think that Jesus was a wise teacher and a righteous man reject him. Even people who say that Jesus did not deserve to die on the cross reject him. In Luke chapter 23, verses 17 to 31, we're going to see both kinds of rejection. We're going to see the blatant, aggressive kind. We're going to see that the Jewish authorities and the crowds who d demanded the crucifixion of Jesus, demanded 
that, that the Romans would kill him. We also see this aggressive rejection in the Romans who actually carried it out. But we'll also see rejection from those who have compassion on Jesus as he goes to the cross. Some people reject Jesus outright. Others reject him while seeming to support him. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus has been standing trial before Pilate. The men of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council, had, had, had handed Jesus over to Pilate on charges of treason against Rome. And in reality, it was the Jews who were committing treason against their own country. They were actually committing treason against God. They told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, a king, and as such, he was in opposition to Caesar. They were rejecting Jesus' theological claims and putting a political spin on it so they could get the Romans to kill Jesus for them. And Pilate, for his part, said that he found no guilt in Jesus and tried to hand Jesus over to Herod. He tried to pass the buck. But when Jesus wouldn't answer Herod's questions, Herod and his soldiers showed contempt for him and mocked him and his kingship by draping a purple robe on him and sending him back to Pilate. And then Pilate called the Sanhedrin together and also the people and declared his verdict, that Jesus was not guilty of the charges that they had made against him. He affirmed that, that Herod had found him not guilty as well. Pilate said that Jesus had done nothing, nothing deserving of death, so he would punish and release him. And again, it was common in Roman law that, that even if an accused person was found not guilty, that they would flog him as a warning. And so Pilate was trying to compromise. But this morning, we're going to see how, as the passage continues, the, the innocence of Jesus is further magnified. We'll also see new depths of injustice in the condemnation of Jesus as he is sent to the cross by one who proclaims he is innocent while releasing a convicted terrorist. But even more than that, we're going to see into the culpability of the Jews for, his cru for their part in the, his crucifixion as they pressure Pilate into it. And Pilate doesn't have the backbone to do what's right with the Jewish authority of putting him in a corner. Once again, Jesus is presented as passively participating in the proceedings, but all the while we see that Jesus is in control of what is taking place as he goes to the cross consciously, that he and his enemies are fulfilling God's sovereign will. We're going to focus this morning, as I said earlier, on the two kinds of rejection that Jesus experiences as he goes to his crucifixion. In verses 17 to 25, aggressive rejection, and then in verses uh, 26 to 31, compassionate rejection. So first of all, aggressive rejection, verse, verses 17 to 25. Again, Pilate has just said in verse 16 that he would punish and release Jesus. But now have a, have a close look here at, at the verse numbers in your Bible. You'll notice that there's no verse 17. That is, unless you're using a, a King James or a new King James, or in the, the NASB, it's, it's there in square brackets. 
The ESV has verse 17 as a footnote. Because it read earlier, now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. Now, the, the reason that verse 17, don't need to freak out, the reason that verse 17 is, is not there in, in most modern Bibles is because of a textual variant. There's a, a textual variant in, in some of the manuscripts of the Bible. There, there's some disagreement among translators as to which manuscripts represent the, or the best representation of the original manuscripts. Now, I won't go into details, but, but the bottom line here is that, is that some early manuscripts do contain verse 17, but the earliest ones do not. Now, frankly, I don't know whether it's actually there in the original manuscripts of the Bible or not. But I've included verse 17 here for, for two reasons, two key reasons. First of all, Matthew, Mark, and John all say something very similar to Luke 23, 17. And in those cases, there is no textual variant. It's very clearly attested. So even if verse 17 was not originally in Luke, it did happen. Okay, even if, even if, if it was later added by a, by a scribe, verse 17 is true. And biblically true. Perhaps the clearest of these is, is John 18.39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Okay, so John is there attesting to, to, verse, to what we are seeing here is verse 17. Second of all, verse 18 doesn't really make sense without verse 17. Luke's account would be unclear as to why the Jews would want Pilate to release Barabbas without the explanation in verse 17 that it was customary for a prisoner to be released at the Passover. Okay, so again, I don't know if it's originally there or not, but, but for the reasons that I just gave, I'm going to, to teach verse 17. This custom was known as the privilegium pascali, the Passover privilege. During the Passover, in order to gain favor with the Jews, the Romans would release one condemned prisoner. Evidently, Pilate saw this as another opportunity to release Jesus. But the Jews would have none of that. So in verse 18, they all cried out together, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas. The Jewish crowds and the leadership were unified in their enmity towards Jesus. So they called out with one voice, again, away with Jesus, release Barabbas to us. Now Jesus had said repeatedly that the people, his own people, were going to reject him. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how back in, in chapter 4, at the outset of his ministry, that Jesus said that, truly I say to you that a prophet is, accept is no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Verse Luke 4, 4, 24. And then immediately they fulfilled his prophecy when he spoke of Elijah and Elisha ministering to Gentiles. The people of the city tried to throw him off a cliff. That was at the beginning of his ministry. And then later in chapter 19, 14, the, with the parable of the ten minus, Jesus said that the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Again, rejecting 
the prophecy of, of the rejection of Jesus. And then in the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus said that the tenants would kill the landlord's son. This is all the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised and rejected by his own people. But not only did they despise and reject Jesus, they chose Barabbas instead. And Luke tells us that, that Barabbas had been imprisoned for insurrection and murder. The Jews chose a convicted terrorist instead of Jesus. And so by choosing Barabbas, they're actually highlighting their own guilt. And then again, we're told that Pilate desired to release Jesus. Matthew 27 provides a little bit more detail. Pilate's wife had had a, a bad dream, which, which she deemed prophetic, leading her to warn her husband to have nothing to do with that righteous man. And Matthew also says in, in chapter 27 that, that Pilate knew that the real reason the Jews wanted Jesus dead was because of envy. Particularly the Jewish leadership is in view here. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity and of his, his influence with the crowd, so they wanted him dead. But the leaders, these leaders who had accused Jesus of misleading the people, had themselves misled the people in the worst way possible in leading the people away from Jesus, somehow convincing the crowd that he was a false teacher. A great number of people had been following Jesus during his ministry, but, but this fickle crowd now turns away from Jesus and joins with the religious leaders. And so now the leadership and the crowd as one shall crucify him. Crucify him. Again, as we mentioned last week, so that, that these were some of the same people who would have welcomed Jesus into the city with the cries of Hosanna to the son of David. In a matter of just a few days' time, now they're calling, demanding for his crucifixion. This is the first direct mention of crucifixion in Luke. In Matthew 20, we see a specific reference to the crucifixion in Jesus' prophecy of his death just prior to his triumphal entry, where, where, where Luke, using the more general term, said that they will kill him. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He'll be raised on the third day. And so now this prophecy is being fulfilled very specifically, very directly, as the Jews command Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Now, we know a little bit about crucifixion. We, 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 we've seen graphic depictions of this. The way crucifixion would take place is, is after, a, a, after a scourging, which is, a, again, a, 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 more severe of, of punish, a more severe form of punishment than that which Pilate was talking about earlier. It involves flaying somebody alive 
with a whip. It was a cat of nine tails that had bits of bone and, and metal and glass embedded in it. And they would flay the skin off the person's back. And Roman soldiers took pride in, in their ability to do this. And then the victim would be forced to carry the, his crossbeam outside of the city walls. Then that he would be nailed or, or tied to a cross, often at a prominent place on the road. It would serve as a, as a warning of what the Romans would do to enemies of the state. It was a shameful way to die as the, the victim hung naked there, left to die over the, the course of days. A placard with the, the victim's crime would be placed over his head. And then he would be hung there by his arms. Again, on quite often, as in the case of Jesus, with, with spikes that, that went through, actually not his hands, but, but through his wrists, through those, those nerve endings in his wrists. So every breath would be a battle. And death would usually come slowly. As life would ebb out over the course of days, usually with asphyxiation or dehydration being the cause of death. And sometimes a Roman soldier would, would break the legs of the person on the cross so they could no longer support their weight at all and they would, they would asphyxiate more quickly and death would come more mercifully. And then the lifeless body would be often left to decay and to be eaten by birth. It's a barbaric form of capital punishment. Crucifixion was the most severe form of death penalty in ancient times. It's, it's, in fact, it's, I believe it's the most severe form of the death penalty ever. The Roman statesman Cicero said that it is a most cruel and ignominious punishment. The, the Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. Under Roman law, Barabbas did deserve the death penalty. Under God's law, Barabbas deserved the death penalty. But here's the irony. The Romans were especially inclined to execute someone for insurrection. Jesus had been accused of insurrection, but Pilate had pronounced him innocent. And yet here was Jesus going to the cross, while Barabbas, who was clearly, clearly guilty of insurrection, went free. We need to understand that like Barabbas, we deserve the death penalty. But not just under Roman law. We deserve the death penalty under God's law. While not an atonement in, in the way that, that Jesus atoned for our sins before God, Jesus would die in the place of of Barabbas. Again, you, you, there's all kinds of, of, of graphic depictions of crucifixion. But none of them can really portray the horrors of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
Because the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross, as horrific as it was, we'll talk about this more next week, was not the agony of Roman torture. It was the agony he faced as the sin bearer as his father poured out his holy and just wrath on his son in our place. That is the ultimate horror of Jesus' crucifixion. Find atonement in Christ who suffered and died in your place, not just under punishment inflicted by the Romans, but under punishment inflicted by God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins. Praise God he didn't stay dead. Three days later he rose from the grave victorious over death. Victorious over sin for us. Find atonement in Christ. But now, in the lead up to the cross, verse 22, a third time, Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Again, speaking of the, the lighter form of, of punishment. There's a, a whipping, but not the, the scourging that I was talking about earlier. Again, Pilate is saying he wants to punish and release Jesus. Now, this is already a travesty of justice. We talked about this last week as well, that, that, that somebody could be innocent and then punished. But again, the Jews pushed back even harder this time. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And this time their voices prevailed. The people's voices, notice this in verse 8 and 21 and 23, overrule Pilate's judgment. Pilate is submitting to a Jewish mob. The fact that Pilate's leadership position was tenuous with his superiors because of his previous failures in keeping the peace in Jerusalem may have had an influence on his decision. Another riot would very likely necessitate a violent response from the Roman garrison would very likely lead to Pilate's removal from office. But Pilate lacked the moral fortitude to stand against injustice, even though it was in his power to do so. But clearly, there is something even more profound being worked out here. God's plan is being worked out here. Pilate wasn't really the one in control. God is the one who is in control. Each player is morally culpable for his own actions, but is that is sovereign is God's sovereign will that is being fulfilled. So in verses 24 and 25, when Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, it is disobeying God's moral will, but but working along the lines of his decretive will. So he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus over to their will. 
Pilate delivered Jesus over to the will of the Jews. So the emphasis here is on the, on the Jews' instrumentality and responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, the emphasis is on the guilt of the Jews, but Pilate is far from innocent. Matthew, again, from Matthew 27, 24 to 26, we, we see that when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it for yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Overcome by pressure from the Jews, Pilate sends Jesus to his death and lets Barabbas go free. And history books, even secular history books, do not judge Pilate favorably. But God will judge Pilate for his cowardice and for his injustice. Scrub though he might, Pilate could never wash Jesus' blood from his hands. And neither could the Jews. So that was aggressive rejection. Now let's consider compassionate rejection, verses 26 to 31. At first, this sounds like an oxymoron, right? It sounds like those words don't go together. How can you, you have compassion for someone while rejecting them? But I trust this will be clear as we go along. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross, carrying it behind Jesus. Never has the word they been used to describe such a wicked and guilty group of people. They, the Romans, the Jewish leadership, and the Jewish people, led Jesus outside the walls of Jerusalem to be crucified. And as they went through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus was forced to, to carry the heavy cross beam on his shoulder. Evidently exhausted from the horrific scourging, Tradition holds that, that Jesus here stumbled. It'd be astonishing if he didn't stumble. And they seized Simon of Cyrene and forced him to carry the cross beam behind Jesus. Now, Cyrene was in modern day Libya. In fact, it's, it's actually Tripoli. And there are actually many diaspora Jews who lived in modern day what is now Libya at that time. Simon was very likely there for the Passover. Mark tells us that, that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so by using these names, it, it's a clue that, that Alexander, Rufus, and, and probably Simon were, were known by the early church. Romans 16 mentions a Rufus and his mother. Of course, we, we can't know for certain, but it's possible that this was Simon's son. It's also possible that Simon carrying the crossbeam and following Jesus is an allusion to Jesus' repeated command to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It looks like a picture of discipleship. But now in verse 27, we discover another group of people. A great multitude 
of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. Clearly, not all of the Jews had sided with the Sanhedrin. Not all were chanting for his crucifixion. So they, they might not have sided with the Sanhedrin, but were they really siding with Jesus? The, these women were, were literally beating their breasts, wailing over what had happened to Jesus. Now, through, throughout Luke's Gospel account, we've seen that, that Luke repeatedly speaks of the favorable, favorable response of women to Jesus. But, but this group is, is clearly not identified as the women who were among his entourage. But now, as, as Jesus had wept for Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, the women of Jerusalem are now weeping for Jesus at his disgraceful departure. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. This appears to be the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10, spoken of also in, in Romans 1. They, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. But Jesus turns to them to speak. Now when we read these words, when Jesus turned to them, this signifies an admonishment. Jesus isn't turning to them to thank them for their tears. He's correcting and redirecting their tears. He's telling them to cry for themselves and for their children over the misery that is about to come upon them. In that culture, having, having children was, was seen as a blessing. And childlessness was seen to be a curse. But now it's the other way around. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Remember the reason why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Remember his, his repeated oracles concerning the destruction of the city. And most explicit was his prophecy in Luke 21, 20 to 24. Let's, let's flip back there for a moment. Luke 21, 20 to 24. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know that its desolation has come near. The Jews are going to suffer greatly. The, the temple and the city are going to be destroyed. It's a day of vengeance upon the Jews for the rejection of Jesus. Jesus is once again, even as he is headed towards the cross, and really his, his last moments on his, his earthly ministry before his crucifixion, he's declaring and revealing that he is the prophet. And that has he has declared back in Luke eleven fifty that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. They are guilty especially of killing this prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in less than 40 years, in A.D. 70, it will be fulfilled as General Titus slaughters a pig in the temple and destroys it and the rest of the city along with it. Hundreds of thousands of Jews will be killed. It's said to be so, so horrific that women even ate their own children in order to survive. But even that prophecy is conflated with the prophecy of global destruction on the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, 
to bring vengeance upon his enemies. These women should have been wailing as in Jeremiah 9, 17 to 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water for a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because we have cast down our dwellings. These women were, were crying, but they didn't know what they should have been crying for. Joel Green explains that these women were weeping for the wrong reason. Thus far, these persons do not understand, he says, Jesus' identity or place within the divine purpose, else they would recognize the, the travesty that awaits them on account of the repudiation of God's redemptive agent. They should have been weeping tears of repentance. So Jesus here is giving them an admonition, but he's also giving them an opportunity to repent. Jesus is saying, he's warning, destruction is near, but this also points to the fact that redemption is near as well. Very near, right there in front of them was their redemption. But they didn't yet recognize him. Jesus, even in his time of misery, is offering an opportunity for repentance. So this prophecy, again, is a warning to these women that they also must repent. Jesus is not calling them to feel sorry for him. He's calling them to have faith in him. Jesus' death does not mean his destruction, but it means destruction for the nation. They are mourning for Jesus, but they should be mourning for themselves. This crowd that followed Jesus in his life are now following him to his death. But very few of them are actually following him. They're following them with, with, his, with their feet, and with their emotions, but not with their lives. They had compassion on Jesus, but what they really needed was repentance and faith. Jesus continues in verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills to cover us, that, that, that some will seek death on that day. Some will seek to hide on that day. Jesus, but Jesus, again, this is prophetic. This is not just speaking of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem, but, but it points to the destruction at the end. The destruction of Jerusalem is typological for the full and final destruction of all things at the return of Christ before he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 6, 16 and 17, we, we read of people who are calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Jesus is offering here forgiveness before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the destruction of all things at the end. When he comes, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know, who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Jesus is not calling for people to mourn over his crucifixion and his death. He's calling them to believe in his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection for their salvation. Verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, this is frankly a confusing verse. It appears to be a proverb. Again, I can't say for sure um, what, it, what it means here. It's, it's possible that Jesus is saying that if, if Jews treat Jesus this way for, for coming to deliver them, then how are they going to be, treat, be treated for destroying him? But I think most likely what's being said here is that if God did not spare Jesus, how much will he not spare the unrepentant nation at the time of divine judgment? That Jesus represents the, the green wood, the, the wood with life in it, but, but Israel represents the dead branches. We'd be burned in the fire of his judgment unless they repent. Again, Jesus is not calling for them to feel sorry for him, and he's not calling you to feel sorry for him either. He is calling you to have faith in him. You do not need to feel sorry for Jesus. He's not on the cross anymore. He's on the throne. He is on the throne. He is reigning at the right hand of God. And one day he will return. He will come on the clouds. And all who are alive at that time will see him. And they will either receive him as their rightful Lord and King. Or they will be cast away into eternal hellfire as his enemies. Judgment was coming upon Jerusalem for the people's rejection of Jesus. A much worse judgment is coming for all people who reject Jesus, whether it is aggressive rejection or whether it is compassionate rejection. There are a lot of nice people in hell. You don't get to heaven by being nice. You don't get to heaven by weeping over what they did to Jesus. You get to heaven by weeping over what you did to Jesus. Because it was your sins and my sins that necessitated the crucifixion of Jesus. I've shared this quote many times, but, but listen to C.G. Mahaney. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old spiritual song asks. And we must answer, yes, we were there, not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, denying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt would be futile. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as do something done by us, leading to repentance. 
Only the man and woman who's prepared to own his or her share in the guilt of the cross may claim a share in its grace. Friends, are you willing to acknowledge your guilt for your rejection of Jesus? Again, as I said to the kids, this is something that you and I did every single day before coming to faith. In fact, every single breath before coming to faith was rejection of Jesus. And many of us who are here, who are here have truly repented. They're truly trusting in Christ and Christ alone as Lord and Savior. But we need to acknowledge that we still reject Jesus every day, even with every breath, because even our righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing to commend ourselves before Almighty God except for the, the commendation of Jesus Christ. As He was condemned in our place, so we receive the, condemn, the commendation that He deserves, as we are credited with His perfect righteousness. If you're trying to stand in in anything of your own, your, your, your identify, identification with Jesus, your, your compassion toward Jesus, your anything other than simple faith in Jesus, you will fall before Jesus and be condemned as his enemy. Your only hope is to trust in him that he died in your place and that he lived in your place. Who crucified Jesus? The Romans, the Jews, you, me. May we all be repenters, walking in wholehearted repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we grow in an awareness of indwelling sin. May, may we put away every high-handed rebellion and even, even tacit rejection of Jesus where we really just ignore him through the course of the day. May God help us to grow in our acceptance of Jesus, our celebration of Jesus. May he help us to know that we dwell before the face of Jesus. May he cause those who are hearing this now who have not yet repented, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus to turn and believe and trust in him and receive the life that can be found only in his name. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your abundant grace. We praise you for the blessings that you have given us in Christ. We praise you especially for the blessing of forgiveness and of new life in Christ. Help us all to see our guilt before you, holy God. But we may, may we turn immediately from our guilt to focus upon Christ. May we rest and hope and trust in Christ and so glorify his name as we increasingly reflect Christ through the work of sanctification in our hearts, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.